Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. Thank you for joining the show this morning. Uh, this is going to be an interesting show, folks. Uh, we're, we have another situation where a man has served 15 years in prison who was wrongfully convicted, served 15 years for a crime he did not con- did not do. So I'm introducing you to Judy Royal. Is it Royal or Royal? Royal. Royal, okay. And uh, the staff attorney for the Center of Wrongful Convictions in uh, Illinois. And also Jason Strong, who is the man who was wrongfully convicted. So, um, Judy, let's just start with you. You're a staff attorney on the Center for Wrongful Convictions. Is that where you were when you got involved with Jason? Yes, and it's the Center on Wrongful Convictions. Uh, What did I say? (laughs) Four. Like, like that's what we're doing. (laughs) Okay. Okay. All right. Got it. All right. Yes, I was was working. I'd been working for some years at the center um, when I first um, got involved with Jason's case. Okay. And when was that? What year was that? When I got involved? You know, Uh I'm trying to remember the, I'm trying to remember the, the exact year. Um, It was after there'd been, there had been um, um, an election. There was a new state's attorney in Lake County, the County in which um, the crime was committed. And so um, the new state's attorney seemed like he might be more open-minded um, on issues of wrongful conviction. And so um, I, re- you know, I reached out to him and to talk to him about Jason's case. And I was not actually working on Jason's case at the time. Um, Tom Gary at the legal clinic was. And so, but I just thought, I, you know, I had a speaking engagement with the state's attorney, and I thought it was a good opportunity to just mm-hmm. talk to him about whether we could have maybe some additional forensic testing or, you know, whether he would be open to something like that. And then um, the next thing I knew, Tom had, you know, um, encouraged me to get involved. The next thing I knew, um, I was on Jason's team. <laughs> oh, wow, that's great. Now, I, I see from your uh, bio, Judy, that you were <clears throat> awarded the Jane Bieber Abrahamson Award. What is that? Um, that is an award that's given um, in the memory of a really remarkable woman who was very passionate about wrongful convictions, and it's, it's given to someone who, um, you know, is um, trying very, you know, trying to fight that fight, basically. Also. Okay, great. Well, congratulations on that. Thank Sounds you. like you Thank do you. really good work. Yeah. Um, and you started at the center in what year? 2001. 2001. So you've been there a good amount of time then. How yes, many, yes. How many? do you know how many exonerations your center has experienced since you started? Well, we have, um, you know, we have dozens. I mean, it, it sort of depends on, um, on how you count them because sometimes we have a case where our investigation leads to somebody being exonerated and that ex- investigation is then the basis for several co-defendants being exonerated also, even though mm-hmm. we couldn't represent them because of possible conflicts. But, um, I would, but we have, we've been involved in a number of exonerations. And if people would like to learn more about the Center on Wrongful Convictions, um, we have, um, they're part of Northwestern Pritzker School of Law, and you can go on the mm-hmm. website and there's stories 
about all of our cases and about the issues that, that we're involved in if anybody wants to, you know, learn more about those cases. So what, what would be the uh, name they put in Google? Just Google if, Center on Wrongful Convictions. Okay. All right. And if, what if they went to Northwestern um, University School of Law? Would they also get to there too? Um, yes, I think you. I think they could also that way. Okay. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, good work. Um, so this is a, a very disturbing case. And Jason, how are you today? I'm good. I, okay. I can't complain. Okay. So you've been out now three years, correct? Uh, a little over three years, probably closer to about three and a half. Okay. So this is your third Christmas free. Absolutely. Wonderful. Getting me to head to Arizona to spend it with my grandparents. Oh, very good. Okay. So, um, so uh, let me go back to Judy. So, Judy, why don't you tell us a little overview of this case? Okay. Well, um, this is, I worked on a lot of fascinating, heartbreaking cases, but this is definitely one of the most bizarre cases I've worked on because this is a case where a young woman's body was found um, in a forest preserve um, in Lake County, Illinois, without identification. And they could not figure out um, who, who, this, who this woman was. And um, obviously, if, if you're going to have a, um, a murder trial, you would think you would need to know who the person was so you would know who their family members were, who they were hanging out with, what was going on in their lives. But in this particular case... Um, the state went ahead and ended up having a trial when this person, when they had no idea um, who the victim was. They just, you know, they came, they, this, they came up with this whole story about how this crime allegedly happened, but they knew nothing about the victim. And her, she was not identified for some years down the road, which is, which is, which is very, very strange. But then when, when her identity was found out, it turns out that she was a developmentally disabled woman who lived, um, you know, in a different county, not close to where she was found, um, mm-hmm. who didn't drive, who had been taken in by, um, to live with some women who had um, a pattern of exploiting vulnerable people. And she had married a mentally unstable man who had multiple arrests for physical violence and who was found to be legally insane and isn't in an insane asylum right now in another state. But mm-hmm. she had a very a tragic tragic life, but that information would have led investigators to be looking at, obviously, at at these people rather than, um, you know, the people who got convicted of this crime. Right. Who who didn't know her, had never, you know, had never seen her, let alone met her or know her. Was the motivation, Judy, just to get a conviction? Is that, I mean, was that the total motivation? What was going on there? Well, it's you know I can't say what was you know what was in people's minds, but um, the, you know this is a county where there had been some a few other you know notorious wrongful conviction cases where people mm-hmm. had um, had conf- you know convert- coerced confessions. Um, what happened with the um, in this case was this woman's body had some strange looking injuries on it, and the the coroner and the and the detectives who looked at it. Um, somehow jumped to the conclusion that maybe there was some sort of like satanic cult ritual aspect to it, which is really, which was really a huge leap to make. Mm. And then mm-hmm. they um, ended up, 
you know, questioning um, some people, and, and Jason could go into that, how that happened, how they talked to him and, and the people he knew. And, but, but Jason, um, you know, for some reason fit into what they, they thought was somebody, you know, he liked heavy metal music and things like that. I mean, they, they for some reason <laughs> thought, thought that this was somebody who might be involved in like a satanic torture murder situation. And it's, it's just, I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable what, you know, how the, that this case even, even happened. But maybe, Jason, why don't you talk a little bit about um, how, how they came to, to be talking to you in the first place? Yeah, Jason, why don't you take that? Yeah, it's uh, actually, I really don't even fully understand that. Um, I know that there was uh, one particular cop that had an issue with me for a while. And um, he had wanted me to be a snitch and tell him all kinds of things about drug dealers and what's going on around the neighborhood. And I told him I didn't know nothing. He told me if I didn't cooperate with him, he'd make my life a living hell. Two weeks later... I'm arrested for this murder that I didn't have anything to do with. And the co-defendant, who I didn't even know on the night in question, who was telling everybody that it was me, was brought in by this cop that had it in for me. So I personally believe that, you know, that's how the whole thing got started against me was this one cop. But once they got me in there, again, I can't prove that. It's just my thinking on how things came about. Um but once they got me into the station, I mean, it was just a constant barrage of showing me these horrible pictures, telling me that they had all this evidence against me, threatening my girlfriend, threatening me. I mean, just a, an endless nightmare of, of things going on all night long to where nothing I said mattered. You know, none of my feelings mattered. I couldn't have an attorney. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything but have them constantly barrage me with all these things and until I gave them what they wanted, which was a confession. And then at trial, it was all about how basically I was, uh, you know, the devil. I was a Satanist because of my music and where I worked. I was a pervert because I worked in an adult bookstore. And so, I mean, it was just a number of things that they used to, to prejudice the jury against me that had nothing to do with actual facts or, or you know, things about the crime. Yeah, there, Judy, was a, go ahead. Um, there was a man in, a, in the case who um, went, who was chatting with a, a woman who was he didn't know was an undercover police officer, and he was just telling her she should be careful because some woman had been picked up, you know, by a van, or, you know, because this was right after this body had been found. And I, and my guess is that he was just simply maybe he was just being nice and trying to warn her, or maybe he just wanted to like chat and act like he knew something just to kind of intrigue her or something. But then he ended up being brought in and he has given different versions of the, of the truth. Even the prosecutors called him truthfully challenged, but he is the one who said, um, gave this version of events involving Jason. So, and, and, um, you know, then he later on, you know, said that it said that it was a lie, but he, they came up with this, this strange, you know, came up with a strange story about how this woman was, was tortured in these bizarre ways and that molten wax was poured over her and, and, oh you know, and, 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 and a lot of, I know, I know a lot of these horrible things, which kind of, you know, fit in with, remember how they were viewing this, the case. And when they went into Jason's room, it was like, oh, look, he has candles. You know, I mean, that, that, you know okay. what I mean? That he must have poured molten wax on her. You know what I mean? Um, it's, it's just, it's just, um, 
it's just a horrifying um, situation. So Jason, well, you know, Jason was convicted, even though they knew nothing about this woman or her life or how she came to be in the county or anything like that. They just, there was this story that, you know, they got from these guys and they ran with it and Jason was convicted and his, you know, his appeals were, were unsuccessful and, um, then, Jason, why don't you tell about what, what happened next? With my appeals? Yes, <laughs> so I, mean, I, uh, your appeals I basically became my own attorney. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. You became your uh, own attorney because your appeals were denied. Yeah, so, I, I mean, we couldn't afford to, you know, pay attorneys endlessly, and they weren't doing much for us in, in the first place, so... Uh, I became my own attorney and my mom and my grandmother were my special forces that, you know, cause I looked at it as a war. So they were my special forces uh-huh. and, uh, they helped me get information that I needed off the internet while I, you know, read and studied and figure out how to put together briefs. And I fought my own case for many years. Um, until when was that? 2008, I want to say when I was in federal court and finally got the uh, the help of Northwestern University. Huh. Um, and how, did, how did, was, did you send in something oh, to Northwestern? How did how did they become aware of the case? Well, I'd been uh, I'd been writing to people for the longest time. Anybody that I could possibly write to, mm-hmm. um, month after month, I would just keep sending things. Uh, and I had some communication with Jane Rayleigh at Northwestern University for a little while. Uh, but it wasn't until I was in the in, in the uh, courtroom of uh, the federal courts fighting my federal habeas corpus petition that I was able to get uh, Tom Garrity to take up my fight. And it was through a procedural issue at that point. But once he saw my case and read more about it and talked to Jane, he understood, you know, there was an innocence issue here and, and took my case on full. Well, and I, and and I, I know you guys say, have... Want... Go ahead, Jane. Go ahead, Judy. Oh, I, just, I just wanted to say that... Um, um, Tom Garrity is one of the most um, wonderful attorneys that you would ever meet. He's the person who basically guided the whole legal clinic here at Northwestern for decades, and he is he's just an amazing person and an amazing attorney, and he um, was contacted by this judge about whether he would, um, would be willing to represent Jason on this procedural issue. And so, yeah, I didn't um, know if we could say he, that or not, so I didn't. Oh, yeah, sure. So he agreed. So he agreed. He agreed. And then when he actually looked at all the materials, you know, he thought, wait a minute, this is, there's, there's, something, there's something wrong here. And so that's when the whole um, next stage of, of Jason's case began. So I'm curious, well, that, what that was actually, the procedural since, issue that I'm was sorry. a question? Uh, it was a timeliness issue, but if I can, just real quick, I, I, I didn't know we could say that about uh, the judge calling him directly. But since we can, I want to just point out that that to me was, was an amazing aspect. I mean, the judge could have appointed anybody, any random lawyer he wanted to, but for him to call Tom Garrity at Northwestern personally and ask him to look at my case, that meant a lot. Well, you know... Because um, like Judy I, said, Tom yeah. is phenomenal. I've been doing this kind of work a lot of years, and usually when that happens, something like that happens, it's because the judge has looked at the case and they're disturbed as well. Right, right. So there was something about the case that bothered that judge to make him step out and call somebody that he knew would do would take care of things. Right, 
And uh, uh, and what was it you asked me? Because I, I kind of went off on a different tangent there for a second. Hmm. What about the time? I don't about the timeliness. <laughs> he was explaining the timeliness. Oh yeah, the the, uh, the the procedural issue was a time matter. So I was uh, so in prison. You often end up on lockdown because something happens. Mm-hmm. And being in a maximum security prison, you're on, you're on lockdown a lot. And the year that I was filing my federal habe, uh, we spent almost. I mean, more than half the year on lockdown. I mean, almost an entire year. And so I couldn't get to the law library to research what I needed to. But they come around and ask people if they need anything. And I told them I was filing my federal head. And they said, oh, no worries. You have a year to file. So I had the impression that I had a year to file, that a year meant a year. But the actual (laughs) statute dictates that it's a year minus how much time you spent filing a previous petition. Oh, well. And I didn't know that. So I was like a week or something short because I didn't know that statute and I was given the wrong information. Uh So that created a procedural issue. Interesting. So his case could have just ended right there. Yeah, exactly. Good for the judge. Good for the judge. So, okay, so let's back up. It was, uh, uh, what was his name? It was Jeremy Tweedy. Was was right. he a co-defendant? Yes. Yes. Okay, so he's the one that initially identified you as being a co-participant. Right. Okay. And so what was his motive initially? I think he was just intimidated. Uh, I yeah. mean, by the time he got to the police station, his hand was crushed somehow. They claim they, accidentally they in the car his door. They in, in the car door. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. And okay. years later, when he recants, he basically says that when they brought him in, all they wanted to talk about was me. They were mm-hmm. basically, you know, what did Jason Strong have to do with this case? Tell us what you know about Jason Strong. Jason Strong this and Jason Strong that. So, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what they want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And was Jeremy Tweedy involved at all? No. No, none of, no, nobody was, nobody was, um, none of them knew the victim. None of them had ever even seen the victim. Mm. This whole thing was just this, this crazy story. And, and yet, uh, Jeremy told the, the authorities that police, after evidently some coercion, that he'd seen you, Jason, torture and beat this woman. And and, yeah. and then there was a third man. It's, it's just, right. so they, they were feeding the, him that information? Oh, absolutely. And what if, and when, when you confessed, how do, people need to hear about false confessions. So, Jason, okay. tell me what they did to get you to confess to something you didn't do. What was that process? How were you thinking about it? Well, I mean, you got to understand that uh, before I'm even in the interrogation room, I'm already terrified. Uh I mean, it was basically around 11 o'clock at night. I'm hanging out with my girlfriend and her friend, uh, having a couple of drinks, smoking a little weed. And uh, I get a knock on the door, and I think it's just my buddy from down the way. When I open it, it's a bunch of cops with guns pointed at me, and they just <laughs> rush into my room, throw me down, and handcuff me, and I'm confused and scared and don't know what's going on. And they're not telling me anything. And then when uh-huh. I get to the interrogation room, it's, as an innocent person, your first instinct is, well, I'm going to 
talk to them. I want to cooperate. I want right. to do whatever I can to resolve this because I don't think yep. they're my enemies. Right? They're the good guys. Right. So you you tell them, yeah, I'll talk to you. And then as things you know go out of control and they're showing you all these pictures and they don't listen to anything you say, you start to get scared and think, well, hey, wait, you know, I need a lawyer. But they don't give you a lawyer. And everything and so, you do is designed to be guilty. So, I, I mean, when I broke down and I cried, it was a sign of guilt because right. that was my emotions and my mercy and my, my uh, you know, remorse and things like that. When I got angry and cursed at them because they weren't listening to me, well, that was signs of guilt because that was my aggression and my violent nature. And, and then they would show me uh, statements from my co-defendants and lie and say they found evidence in my vehicle, which I knew didn't exist, but now I'm even more confused. And it just went on like that all through the night. An endless system of them constantly showing me things and threatening me with rape and prison and everything else. How old were you? 24. 24. And how old was uh, Jeremy Tweedy? About? Uh, Roughly about the same age, maybe a little younger. I think he was a little younger. And who was the other guy? Uh, Jason Johnson. He was actually a friend of mine. Okay. And he and, and did, he immediately he he promptly recanted, and um, right. but it didn't it didn't do any good. Okay, your friend did promptly, but they but initially they got his confession as well. Right. Oh my goodness! Because they uh, showed me his and Jeremy's statements. Hmm. And didn't 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 um, he t- didn't he take his own life? No, or die he of a drug overdose uh, or something died like in that. 2004 from a heroin overdose. A heroin, oh. but it, it sounded like he was um, tortured by, you know, having been involved in these events. Mm. I mean, the events of having Jason be wrongfully convicted. Of his friend. Well, not yeah. only that, I mean, when he got out, you know, the world looked at him as a murderer. You know, that's right. all they saw. They didn't know what we know today and all the evidence of our of our innocence. They just saw... Here's this guy that was locked up for this horrific crime, and now he's back on the streets. Right. You know? So he was still guilty. Exactly. So I, back to the confession. I, I want to get into the psychological part of it a little bit. Jason, how long did they have you in an, an interrogation room? Uh, throughout the night. So I was arrested around 11. And keep in mind that, yeah, I've been awake the whole day, you know, mm-hmm. up to that point. And how it had hardly any sleep the night before. So I'm going off, you know, a long period of time with a little sleep. Then they come and do all this, bring me in, and then they interrogate me all through the night into the morning hours when I finally just break out of frustration and stress and confusion and tiredness and, you know, you name it. You finally just get to a point where you feel like there's no other option on the table for you but to give them what they want. That's the only way so- it'll end. Did they make you any kind of promises? Were they promising you would be released if you told them what they wanted or anything like that? Yeah, well, there was uh, one one particular officer, uh, Lou Tessman, who was, uh, I believe, a lieutenant at the time, but I could be mistaken. Uh, he was basically kind of giving me the whole friendly cop thing, like, oh, you know, hey, if you tell us what we need to know, we'll, you know, we'll stand with you and, and uh, when you go to your bail hearing and all this and. Uh, and then there was another one, uh, Valco, that was kind of trying to be the friendly cop as well. Uh, he didn't really offer me anything. He was just trying to be like the consoling guy, like, it's okay, it's okay. Just we understand how these things happen kind of thing. 
Oh, the good cop, cop bad cop theory? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, doing? pretty much. Yeah, okay. Well, well, Lou, All right. Lou Testman, Lou Testman had been involved in, a, in one of the center's most famous cases, the Juan Rivera case from some years ago. That was, um, you know, a, a, a very notorious conviction that, that was finally overturned. But he was um, one of the officers who took um, Juan's final, and I'm putting air quotes, confession. Yeah, uh, and Juan spent 20 years, didn't he, uh, yes, yes. for a, mm-hmm. a murder of a girl, but yes. when, and he was cleared by DNA. Yes. Right. So in Jason's case, there wasn't any DNA uh, at all. Yes, that, no. that's true. So Jason, Jason's case was, um, that's the kind of case that's much harder to overturn. Yeah, Right. But sadly, so, but I think Jason, that's the majority of cases. Most cases don't have DNA. And people right, don't realize people that because they get the... Yeah, people don't realize that, yeah. Right. But they, just, they watch with, these with, shows on TV and they think it's all that simple science that just does its job overnight and that's not how it works. Well, the, you know, the, the reason that, um, I, that, we, that we were able to win Jason's case was that um, they, the state had argued that Jason's confession was credible because the details from the confession about how the victim was assaulted and killed were corroborated by physical evidence from the victim's autopsy. Okay, so that's why they argued that even if people canted or whatever, that this, that the, that the, well, this was consistent. So mm-hmm. when, we were, um, when we were reinvestigating the case, um, we were able to, the, the Lake County State's Attorney was, was being cooperative with the Illinois General's Attorney General's office was agreeing that we could reinvestigate. Well, um, um, the state's attorney pulled um, people to cooperate with us in the investigation. So um, another attorney on the team, Maria Huillo, um, and I went to the coroner's office and, and looked, and they gave us their file, and there were a lot of photos of the victim in that file from the autopsy that, um, we, that we had never seen and that we don't think were ever turned over. Uh-huh. And so we, we were able to get copies of those and also some tissue block and take them to, um, you know, a, a very high-quality forensic pathologist. And um, that's, that's what really, in my opinion, um, solved the case because it turns out that these things that, like, for example, I told you about the wax, that was a big deal, this whole wax thing, because they got these statements to say that they, these guys poured wax on the victim, and then there was, it looked like molten wax marks on her body. Well, it turned out there was no wax on her body, and what they had interpreted as being molten wax was actually decomposition, um, change in coloration of the skin. So one of the big details that everybody kept emphasizing was, was totally incorrect. And the state also, the story that everybody gave was that they had met this woman brought her to the motel room, partied with her, then they decided to, um, you know, torture her and kill her and, and dump her body. But it was all that it all happened that night. And actually what these photographs showed was that this, this woman had been a victim of, of long-term neglect and abuse. She says that some of the, the um, marks looked like she's seen in cases where there's somebody sometimes like a family member will, a developmentally delayed person will be um, like locked up in a closet or something and, and, and injured. And then that's what, those are the kinds of things that, that they saw on this body. So it was, an ex, it, was, it was an extended period of time, which is 
totally, you know, opposite to what the the story was about how uh-huh. they met her. And that one night she happened to be in Lake County, which made no sense that she would be in Lake County anyways. Do you know what I mean? Right. But it, and, it right. Turns, and it turns out after they found out who she was, she, as I mentioned before, was um, under the control and influence of these people who have an undisputed history of financially exploiting um, disabled people. Interesting. And Interesting. this violent, crazy man who um, she right. married and who confessed to killing her, although the statements he gave were, you know, um, not, were not accurate. And so people just, you know, didn't, they, people they did not believe it. him. Yeah. Although right. it turns out that there was, there, I happened to find a hearing that was given where um, this, this woman's, young woman's family um, were seeking to have the marriage annulled. They didn't know where she was, but they wanted to have this marriage legally annulled. And in that transcript, there's a reference to this man, whose name was Chimizo, having said something about um, this, um, this young woman having been um, killed in December um, of 99. And this was before her body had been found. So nobody knew when she had been killed. Interesting. So that's, uh, yeah, you, that, no, that, that, that didn't come, that wasn't picked up on at the time, but that was another very interesting fact about this case. Yeah, very uh, good. I point something out that you, you kind of uh, missed on that too, was uh, for the forensic pathologist that reviewed all the information and helped uh, to get my release, um, yeah, they, they discovered the injuries were in various stages of healing and that this obviously went on for a long period of time, but they also discovered that you know, as Judy pointed out, the state's theory was all this happened in one night and the body was dumped on December 9th. But the uh, pathologist determined that she had actually been dead many days before that, possibly four or five days before that night even occurred. And that uh, the injuries that led, that contributed to her death were actually inflicted even further back than that. Basically, so what I, removing the state's entire case and story from us. And, and so I want to point out an, an, another thing too is that remember that remember that the story was that she was um, that she was attacked in this motel room and then transported in Jason's van. Okay, right. Well, right. there was not there was not a speck of of evidence that that connected this victim or any injuries to her in either the motel room. Or the van, and I'm sure you can imagine that they were examined and tested very, very closely. <laughs> I'm sure, they were. But that, yeah. I mean, but how? I mean, you know, I mean, what, what geniuses these guys are that they can do a violent beating and murder, transport a body, and not have a, a you know, a speck of blood or hair found found, you know, found anywhere at the scene. So, another, I mean, it was just another example of a huge, a huge red flag. Okay, so so what I'm hearing, uh, you guys, Judy and Jason, is Mm -hmm. the state withheld evidence, so so there was misconduct there because it sounds like the her injuries um, were disclosed as with the way they should have been. Is that correct? Am I understanding that right? Well, it's um, the photo, the photographs that um, that the forensic that our forensic pathologist reviewed were not we do not think they were given to her earlier attorneys but it's it's um 
it's possible there's a situation that the forensic pathologist um, just um, misinterpreted um, what he, what he saw. And Jason, why don't you why don't you say about what what was found out about that forensic pathologist um, in your civil suit? Yeah, so uh, people always wonder how could he get all this stuff wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that went, so when we sued, when I got out, we sued the police departments that were involved. And during that lawsuit, we had uh, depositions, and one of the people that we deposed was the coroner from my trial, from my case. Okay. And it was determined, uh, my, uh, my attorney that handled the lawsuit uh, informed me that this guy never even went to medical school here in the United States. He Great. went to some fly-by-night school in the Dominican Republic that was closed down for fraudulent practices. So he's not even a fully, properly trained licensed physician or doctor. And yet he's uh, practicing medicine in, court, in criminal cases. That and I, is, just, I think that's terrible. It is terrible. It's astonishing and it's disgusting, actually. Uh, oh, my goodness. So... Was but there was police misconduct though in Absolutely. this case, and the coerced, the coerced confession was there planted evidence? Was there anything like that 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 played a part in in it? No, there wasn't anything that I recall ever being planted. Uh, okay. It was just a. a a stiff arm kind of approach to coercing us. And I, and again, I, I can't ever prove it, but I, I still feel like it all kind of revolved around that one cop that just had it in for me. And once they had me in there, you know, his buddies kind of just followed suit. And then of course there's a lot of cops that just doing their job, you know, not all of right. them are, you know, on, right. the, on this right. idea of let's railroad somebody, you know? Well, and did the attorney, was it a, a court appointed, a public defender, a hired attorney? What, what where did you get your public attorney? defender at trial? Yeah, okay. and that was uh, that was a, a joke. Okay, so you know I've got to say, you know I know public defenders get a bad reputation often, but there are also a lot of just excellent public defender attorneys out there. You just I guess you happen to. Get oh no, there's some great them. ones. Um, yeah, Maria, so, that Judy mentioned earlier, came from the DC office, and I mean they're they're she's great, and they're great up there. So yeah, right. So. So did the attorney hire an expert? Was there a pathology expert that looked at the nope. the victim's photos or anything like that? My uh, my public defenders basically did the state's job for him, so much so mm. that I don't blame my jury for convicting me. Wow. Because basically they went in there and told my jury that the confession was true. And it just wasn't me that did it. It was my co-defendant. So they basically did that because that was easier for them than trying to prove my innocence. But that also ruined my chances to testify on my own behalf because by the time they were done telling all these, you know, stories to the jury, I would have gone up there and basically gone against every single thing they said. And that would have really killed any chance I had if there was any at all. Mm Mm-hmm. Amazing. And where is that attorney now? Do you know? I, I have no idea where they're at. There was two of them. Uh, one actually seemed to be uh, remorseful about the way he handled my case. The other one, not so much. He doesn't really care. He's just about mm-hmm. himself. But I don't know what they're doing, though. Yeah. Interesting. 
Okay, so, uh, you know, we're, we're going to take a quick break. I skipped over our normal bake, so we're going to take a quick break because I didn't want to interrupt you guys. It was so interesting. So we'll be right back um, just in a second. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guests today are Jason Strong, who was wrongfully convicted of a murder where he spent 15, well, 15 and a half years in prison, actually, for something he didn't do or wasn't even close to doing, didn't even know about. And then Judy Royal, who is a staff attorney at the Center on Wrongful Convictions in Chicago, Illinois. Um, Jason was just telling me offline, Jason, why don't you just talk about that, about the uh, the mother-daughter uh, Sure. Relationship sure. Uh, with the so, victim. Right. So as you uh, as you recall earlier, Judy had mentioned that there was this kind of team of grifters that uh, the victim came in contact with that had a history of extorting people and taking advantage of elderly and disabled people. And during the time when she when the victim was in these people's I don't know circle, whatever you want to call it, uh, in their hold, I should say. Uh, the last that, the, that her family ever heard from her, she said, they don't want me to talk to you. And nobody ever heard from her again. And that was way earlier in, this, in uh, 99, around like April so or something. Mo- it was I thought it was way earlier than that. No. No. 
Yeah, so... Well, I know it was. It showed that she had been held for a long time. And the police knew about this during your trial? Or that, what, that, was, that came to light afterwards? Well, no, they never made that connection because, uh, well, the, the dental records came out and a missing person investigation was launched in Carpentersville, which is not too many counties away from Lake County. Mm-hmm. But uh, they never made the connection. But in my opinion, it's because they weren't really trying to find answers anymore. They figured they had their three guys in a, in a solid conviction coming, and so they didn't try. Did anything so ever happen to those two people? No, and no. Um, we, you know, we, we deposed um, one of these women. The other one's deceased, and um, I think everybody who's, who saw that, um, you know, is, is, is convinced that, you know, that she was lying. And the, um, we, we are interested in knowing um, if they're going to actually, you know, solve this case and, and, mm-hmm. and people are going to be held accountable for it. But, you know, the, um, you know I'm, I don't, I don't that think is not, they will. That has not happened. Well, it, yeah. is, it has not happened, and it's, you know, it, I guess it doesn't really look very likely now. Well, you well, figure the, the one woman is, is passed, the husband yeah. or the... Uh-huh. if you want to call him a husband, the guy she was sold to is mentally deranged in a, in a mental institution. And the other woman is basically a career criminal. All she would have to say is, oh, it was my mom and this other guy. I mean, and who's going to dispute that? Uh-huh, uh-huh. But they, one of the things they did was they they um, obtained her the, the young woman's ATM card, and 10 months after she died... They were trying to get money from it, out of it. I mean, they were, they were, um, yeah. They there were, were so many, well, yeah, there were so many avenues they, they could have uh, investigated and didn't. Now, right. this state's attorney at the time, Michael Mermel, uh, he has a history of uh, convictions that have been overturned. It Was that? He was a prosecutor um, in, the, in the Juan Rivera case. But he was um, he wasn't the, he wasn't the head state's attorney. He was a pro, he was one of the main prosecutors. So okay. he did the Rivera case, and he was involved in a, in a number of controversial cases. And he is he's retired now. He did not um, he did not have anything to do. Um, I mean, he had with the most recent developments in Jason's case. But yes, he was a prosecutor in Jason's case, and he yeah, he was like I said, he was involved in a number of, of you know of controversial cases. Well, it's As a matter of made a lot of controversial County ended up about leaving cases. his job because of, of those cases. Okay. Right. All right. Well, that's good to hear. Um, okay. So, Jason, I'm really curious to know what you're doing today and what your what your plans are for the future. I know you've got a lot of things going on. I want to hear about those. <laughs> I, uh, well, I mean, it wasn't an easy road, obviously, getting out. There was a big transition period, and I, mean, I still have certain issues I struggle with. Uh, rejoining the world after, you know, a decade and a half in a cage is a, is a weird thing. So uh, there's a lot of issues there. But for the most part, I'm doing fairly well. Uh, I'm, I've become a filmmaker. Uh, I do a TV show here in Nashville. And I'm also working on a documentary about wrongful convictions. I recently finished a short film about wrongful convictions. Uh, I'm also hoping to start a podcast next year. Uh, I've uh, kind of I got to sit on the uh, the set and be kind of the unofficial uh, advisor, if you will, to uh, David Elliott 
for the show Proven Innocent, which is going to be on Fox next year, February 2015. Nice. Okay, 2019, uh, February the 15th. There you go. 2019, um, okay. And so I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm doing a lot of things. Uh, I, I do speaking engagements. Uh, I'm trying to, I, I've hosted an event last year where I try to raise awareness about wrongful convictions and raise money for the center and just various things. Jason has become a really remarkable advocate on, for wrongful conviction issues. I mean, he, I, um, I'm so excited at, at everything that he's doing and will be doing in the future. He's, he's, he's really a remarkable person. So the um, the sh- show that you have in Nashville, what is that about? Uh, it's a music show. It's a non-genre specific music show. So I have like uh, local artists. Uh, well, some not so local because I had some some buddies from uh, Colorado that came out and did a show. But uh-huh. uh, it's uh, they come on, do a couple songs, and sit for an in-depth interview, and and that's it. It's just a little thirty-minute show. Okay. Um, and- except for. My buddies, they, I did a whole concert for them. But so you did. Yeah, so what do you mean you did a whole concert for them? Are you also a musician? No, no, no. I well, I'm learning to be one. I'm playing okay. guitar now, but uh, <laughs> no, I uh, they they were on tour when they did the show, so I just went to a venue and filmed their entire concert, and I'm going to turn it into an hour long special. Oh, terrific! Okay. Now, so where did you learn? Is this a craft that you learned in prison? Did you were you involved in it before? How did that all evolve? No, no. I've, uh, I've well, I've always been an artist. Uh, okay. Whether it was painting, drawing, writing poetry, short stories, whatever, uh, okay. and now I'm trying my hand at film. I've always loved film since I was a little kid. I've always loved music. Both have played a, a big role in my life. So I figured I'd go into film and you know try to dabble in music as well. That's so great. when I got out, I was looking at film schools. I couldn't afford it. But uh, right. this guy I met who actually teaches up in Harvard uh, found this place for me. There was a little public access cable place. Mm-hmm. And for like a couple hundred bucks, I could take all these classes and become a producer and use their studio. So that's what I did. That's great. That's fabulous. And this podcast you're going to start, what is that going to be about? Uh, I... Can't, I don't want to get into all the details of it, but it's going to be about wrongful convictions. Okay, cool. Uh, we're, we're supposed to hopefully pitch it uh, in January. So. All right. And it well, that's be, exciting news. And, uh, and it you would know, be me and... It, I'm sorry. I was just going to say uh, that... I was just going to uh, say it, it would be me and uh, David Elliott that would be doing it together. Okay, all right. So, um, it's in California anyway, I don't know about... Uh, I'm sure it's the same in Illinois. When when you're released from prison on parole, you get gate money, right? Do you do the same thing in Illinois? I wasn't released on parole, so no, I don't I, know, no, I know about I'm that. Asking but, Judy. Judy, but do you know that? No, they just gave me the money. They just gave me the money that was in my account, and that was it. Okay, so um, the the point I'm trying to make is in in some states, if you're exonerated. You get nothing, but if you are released on parole, you get gate money. It. So, so exonerate. Exactly, that's exactly the situation. That's okay. exactly, you're exactly so, right. Yeah. When you're actually innocent and you get out, you're, yeah. you're not entitled to any services. You don't get any, you know, the most they do is maybe give, put you on a bus and send, to send you somewhere else. 
it's that's always astonishing to me because here you are you you've served time that you shouldn't have been there to begin with and you get nothing and yet if you've you're convicted and you did the crime and you're getting out and on parole then you get at least a couple hundred bucks well i think that's because for well for forever pretty much we've never our society and our system has never stopped to acknowledge the fact that innocent people go to prison and our criminal justice system isn't perfect. We're, we're starting to realize that now, but for many, many, you know, decades, centuries, we never thought about these things. Fortunately, the tide is changing and more people are paying attention. Judy, does, um, does the Lake County District Attorney's Office have a... Uh, I'm sure. What do they call that? It, it's a. It's like a wrongful conviction section. A conviction review panel. Yes, they do. Yeah. And actually, um, after I first spoke with um, State's Attorney Nurheim about Jason's case, um, he agreed that we could present it to the, um, the, the his conviction review panel. And we and actually, it was it it worked very well because we ended up doing an in depth um, presentation for. Um, the prosecutors for somebody we invited AG's office we invited the conviction review panel state's attorney Nairheim. Um the other side had their own expert witness we brought our expert witness and there were different and we did different presentations and the witnesses could ask each other you know questions and it was it was um, really a great way to evaluate a case because there's none of these sort of like you know um, hoops you have to jump through legally mm-hmm. about whether it's something can be presented or, or you know this type of thing. We could just right. put our cards on the table and say you know just here's here's what we you know here's the evidence here's what we think. What does your expert think? And we and um, after that presentation, they actually wanted their their witness kind of agreed with our witness, and so they wanted to find a third expert witness to a, a burn specialist. No, they, I mean, I think they were just, yeah. you see, this was such a horrible crime. This yeah. is a torture murder of a developmentally disabled right. young woman. Right. And was there any chance at all of guilt? You know, I think they thought they couldn't let him out. So they said, okay, we want, maybe you could help us find a, a burn expert, a pathologist. So we, there was another expert witness, and he agreed again with what our expert witness had said. And then... Um, the state's attorney agreed to um, to dismiss the charges, and, and Jason was released. But and, and I just want to add was, something, too. It was a um, battle. Oh, right. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, like when people get out, they don't get anything. You know, Illinois does have a setup, though, where, you know, if you get a certificate of innocence, the state of Illinois will give you a certain amount of money uh, oh, really? okay. for, for yeah. your time. But it takes, it's a process to get it. I mean, it doesn't happen right as soon as you walk out the door. But on that note, I mean, most people, most, there's a lot of states that don't offer anything. And the only way to get anything is through a lawsuit. And I think that's wrong. So, I mean, if, if listeners want to, you know, make a difference or make a change, they should find out if their states offer compensation to exonerees. Mm-hmm. And if not, stand up for that. You know, help, help us, uh, and, make and, a change. No, I, no I, I agree. And, of course, with the... With the um, procedure in Illinois, you know, you have the bur- we had the burden of proof to establish innocence, and you know that's it's not not everyone might you know is going to yeah, be able to do it. Tough. But and they're yeah. fighting. So, some of these cases are really being fought. But I just want to mention one more thing about that point about what exonerees get is that um, two exonerees um, from this from the center um, 
Christine Bunch and Juan Rivera have started an organization called Justice for Just Us, and they have a website, but they are trying to um, develop an organization to help um, people when they're exonerated with their, with their you know, initial needs. And I think this is um, a very interesting idea because it's, you know, it's the idea was um, from two exonerees who have experienced this, and, that, and they're, you know, they want it to be an, you know, an, an all-exoneree project. You know, they want to help have exonerees help other exonerees. And, um, you know, I think it's something that you're, people listening to this might want to check that out. Actually, uh, if you could put me in contact with them, Judy, I'd appreciate having them on the show. That would be an uh, interesting topic. I, you know, I, I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at, North so, West, at Northwestern Law School, we have social workers who are able to, you know, to give some help, but some some exonerees basically, you know, receive almost no help, and it's it's so, and people have no idea how difficult their lives are after they've been um, incarcerated for so many years. Uh-huh. So, Jason, what has been the toughest thing you've experienced after being released? Well, I mean, there's a lot of various issues, um, but probably my biggest one when I first got out was just being around people and being around society in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, I wasn't used to the way that people conduct themselves in public. You know, like I would go to a Walmart and if people walked around behind me, that that freaked me out because I wasn't used to that. You know, in in prison, you don't just wander around behind somebody meaninglessly, you know, without alerting them that you're there. You know, it's like, it's just one of those weird things where you're uncomfortable around people. Uh, Another thing was human contact. My mom and my grandmother, rightly so, wanted to hug me and never let me go. Right. Mm -hmm. But because Mm -hmm. I wasn't used to human contact for such long periods of time like that, I mean, I would have a hug with them when they left on a visit. But other than that, you know, I was I wasn't used to that. So that kind of bothered me. And I felt bad that I had to tell them I couldn't be hugging and being held all the time like that Mm because it it was disturbing to me. So there's little issues like that. And then nightmares, you know, waking up (sighs) thinking I'm back in prison. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can see that. Oh, my goodness. Well, congratulations, Jason, and congratulations to you, Judy, and to the Center on Wrongful Conviction, because uh, you're doing such good work, and, and, and Jason, good for you for taking the ball in your own hands and, and moving forward, because uh, without you doing that, you wouldn't be here today either. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's just terrific. So we're almost at the end of our, our show, folks. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your time, and I appreciate you telling the story. It's, um, it's, it's sad and gratifying at the same time, so it's, uh, it's kind of a little hard to balance. It must be for you, too. So thank you so much. And, folks, the rest of you, tune in again next week as we declassify more stories from situations that involve investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 